0: Hello, and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 18. We're heading back to England in the mid 1800s, and we'll be covering the Bermondsey Horror. If you haven't heard of it, neither had I <laughs> until I started researching for this episode, uh, but it's a really interesting case that involves uh, one murder and a married couple. So let's just dive right in. On top of Horsemonger Lane Jail in Southwark, London, just before nine o'clock on the morning of Tuesday, November 13th, 1849, a man named Frederick Manning arrives at the gallows. The second to arrive was his wife, Marie Manning, who was exquisitely dressed in a black satin outfit. She needed to be assisted up the stairs because she had asked for a black veil to be placed over her face before leaving the prison. The couple's nooses were tightened in front of an estimated 30,000 spectators before the executioner pulled the lever, sending the husband and wife plunging to their deaths. Frederick died instantly, but Marie had to writhe for a short time before eventually becoming still. Uh, one of the spectators was someone very famous, and that was writer Charles Dickens. And he believed that public executions should be abolished after witnessing the hanging and the boisterous behavior of the audience. Uh, so he was in his hotel that morning, uh, and the room that he rented happened to overlook the spectacle. But what had the Manning family done to merit such a dire outcome? Well, their story involves love, treachery, greed, and murder. In a scheme nicknamed the Bermondsey tragedy, the couple had murdered Marie's affluent lover in cold blood three months prior and attempted to profit from their victims' fortune. New technologies and the newly established police units that had appeared throughout Britain in the past two decades would be their eventual undoing. Now that you know the ending, let's go back to the very beginning. In Taunton Somersets County town in southeast England, Frederick George Manning was likely born in or around 1819. He was the oldest child of a local militia sergeant who also ran a tavern called the Bear and collected tolls. In order to support himself, Fred started working on the railroads. This job took him to London and eventually led to a position as a guard on the Great Western Railway. When his father passed away in 1845, he left Fred's mother the majority of his assets, which fell to Fred upon her death. Additionally, Fred received an inheritance, and it's said that by the time he meets his future wife Maria in 1847, he had about 400 pounds in savings. Marie was born in Switzerland in 1821 uh, as Marie LaRue. She travels to England to start working as a servant after her parents pass away around the middle of the 1840s. Uh, as it was simpler for her different employers to process, uh, she changes her name to Maria at that time. Later authors dealt with the absence of any real information regarding her early life by simply inventing it from scratch. Uh, One author gives her devoutly Catholic parents who would have sent her to a nunnery uh, because she has a bandit lover named Montano who would have enticed her away from her life of virtue. Then, according to this made-up narrative, Maria started working as a maid for an Irish couple by the name of Wentworth with whom she naturally has an affair. Of course, everything is false, but it did help to sell a lot of that particular author's books. Around the age of 22, Maria makes her first confirmed appearance in Devon in 1843. She worked as a maid for Lady Anna Polk, Sir Lawrence Polk's wife. And according to subsequent reports, uh, Patrick O'Connor, an immigrant from Thurles in County Tipperary, was already a friend of hers at this time. Now, Patrick is going to bring Maria's on-again, off-again lover for the following six or seven years. Um, despite being around twenty years her senior, Patrick was a dishonest customs inspector who profited from a mix of money lending and smuggling. However, some authors believe that the couple first crossed paths in eighteen forty six after Lady Polk had passed away, and Maria had joined the household of Lady Blanchard, a lower class nobility. The two seemingly meet on a cruise and start dating while Patrick is vacationing in France and Maria is going to meet her mistress. Whatever the circumstances ended up being, the Irishman and the maid would continually circle one another uh, throughout the next several years, but they're never actually engaged in a committed relationship. Sometime in 1845, Fred emerges as Patrick's adversary, it's likely that Fred and Maria first crossed paths when Maria was riding the Great Western line with Lady Polk. After she enters Lady Blanchard's service and settled into Stafford House in London's West End, the two men continue to have feelings for her. Now the Duke of Sutherland, Lady Blanchard's father, lived in one of the grand majestic homes in the city. Maria would have seen the wealthiest individuals in the British Empire living extravagant lives. Uh, people such as Queen Victoria, who frequently visited. Despite the fact that their visits were limited to the servants' quarters, Patrick and Fred both took great pleasure in telling their pals that they're going to meet Maria at the Stafford House. Maria's letters to Patrick demonstrate her dissatisfaction with his lack of a marriage proposal, which might have been one of the reasons that led her to accept a marriage proposal from Fred in 1847. Although he likely inflated the amount he was expected to get from his mother, Fred appears to have partly based his proposal on his prospects of inheriting a great sum from her. Whatever the reason was, Maria agrees to the marriage, and the two are wed in Piccadilly's St. James Church, uh, and Henry Poole, a fellow guard and close friend of Fred, was one of the attendees. Now, Henry would end up having a surprising impact on the Mannings' lives. Patrick does not attend the wedding, um, but he does leave a lasting impression on the couple when he writes Maria a letter shortly after the nuptials, in which he professes his undying love and claims that he was about to pop the question to her before she weds Fred. Although it's probably untrue, um, this was one of the dark seeds that might have contributed to the uh, falling apart of Maria's marriage to come. If everything had gone to plan, Maria would have continued working for a while before retiring to start a family with Fred. However, Fred loses his job at the Great Western and everything begins to fall apart. After Fred is let go, the two discuss their options and they choose to go back to Fred's hometown. With his funds, his inheritance, and possibly a farewell present from Maria's work, the pair managed to purchase the White Hart, an inn in Taunton. There, the couple lived in a contentious marriage. According to later sources, Maria would frequently travel uh, to be with Patrick, and Fred was friendly with a number of other local women. Whether these rumors were accurate or not, uh, the couple did largely remain together. But uh, business at the White Hart was severely damaged when it was discovered that a pair of criminals had stayed at the inn, and one had even used Fred's name as an alias several times. Despite the fact that Fred and Maria were cleared of any wrongdoing, the damage had been done. They were forced to sell the inn and return to London. Uh, They owned uh, King John's Head Tavern in Kingsland Road for a short time, but that too failed to last. And in order to make ends meet, they eventually relocated to Minver Place in Bermondsey, where Maria worked as a dressmaker, and they took in extra lodgers. So it's during this time that Maria is going to fully reconnect with Patrick, uh, because of a concern that maybe she had actually married the wrong man. So they begin a full-fledged affair. Oddly, it appears as though Fred might have been aware of the relationship because Patrick periodically goes to dinner at the Mannings' home. This odd arrangement lasts for a little bit of time, but by the summer of 1849, Maria and Fred realized it just couldn't go on anymore. Maria was now more devoted than ever to her husband, and she makes the decision to get rid of Patrick, but not his money. So the pair devise a plan to murder Patrick and profit from his enormous wealth. The Mannings settled on a fairly straightforward but brutal strategy. They'd make Patrick feel welcome, ask him over for dinner, and then shoot him with a tiny handgun that Maria had bought. Then to hasten the body's decomposition, they would bury his body beneath their kitchen floor and cover it with quicklime. Maria would start collecting anything of worth from Patrick's mile residence the following morning, including his railway share certificates. Being a frequent visitor, she didn't think anyone would be suspicious if she simply showed up. The plan was to proceed on August 8th of 1849, after the quicklime was delivered to the Manning residence in late July. But it was derailed because Patrick had actually invited his friend Pierce Walsh to join him for dinner. Maria extended a dinner invitation to Patrick the following night, but asked that he come alone this time so that they could spend more, um, intimate time together. And Patrick happily agreed. So Patrick returns to the Manning house in the late hours of August 9th, where he was shot in the back of the head by Maria and falls face first into the ground. But the small revolver's bullet wasn't enough to kill him. So Fred grabs an iron bar and bludgeons Patrick to death. The pair have to quickly replace the flagstone on the kitchen floor after finishing the deed by burying the body in soil and quicklime. So the next morning, according to their plan, Maria goes to Patrick's home uh, to gather his railway share certificates and any other valuables that she can find. Three days after the murder, Patrick's coworkers went looking for him at his home. And they find Maria, who tells them that O'Connor had told her that he was going to meet her for supper the night before, but he simply vanished. The men are temporarily satisfied by Maria's attempt to maintain composure and her claim that he had not visited her home that evening, uh, but she knew they were likely to come back. So at this point, Fred and Maria are becoming wary of one another. Maria ends up fleeing first, taking the majority of their stolen fortune with her as she uh, goes alone to Scotland. Now Fred quickly sells all of their furniture after realizing he's been left behind and he leaves for Jersey with the proceeds as well as what Maria had left behind for him. In the interim, Patrick's friends contact the Metropolitan Police, which had only been established about 20 years earlier, and they report him missing. When officers arrive at the Mannings to speak with Fred and Maria, they knock on the door, but they don't get any response. So they force access into the house out of suspicion. And what they discover is that it's empty, devoid of any furnishings or residence, with loose flagstone in the kitchen. It's going to turn out to be one of the simplest searches that the brand new police unit ever conducts, because when the flagstone is taken out, Patrick O'Connor's body was promptly discovered. The search was on for the murderers as the missing persons investigation turned into a murder investigation. Naturally there was immediate public interest in the case, and Maria is quickly singled out by the media as the murderer. Simple economics dictated that women killers simply sold more newspapers. And soon rumors about her as a brazen adulteress who had planned the murder of her lover out of pure greed. And had coerced a weak-willed husband into doing so, began to circle among the general public. But back to the investigation. Maria's destination is quickly determined when inquiries at King's Cross Station reveal that she had boarded a train destined for Edinburgh. When the Metropolitan Police used the telegraph to get in touch with their Scottish counterparts, Maria was detained in a hotel where she was using a false name. Now Fred is captured because a former acquaintance who had read about the murder in the newspaper, which had widely reported the story and given it the moniker the Bermondsey Horror, noticed Fred in a boat headed for Jersey. This leads to his arrest, which was also made possible via the telegraph. Police in London received this information through telegraph and they made arrangements for Fred's arrest and return to the city. When police barged into his room, he was found dozing in bed with a hangover. In his confused state, he confessed to killing Patrick because he quote, didn't like him. But Maria by far was the target of most of the press. It seemed as though she had been created specifically for pure sensationalism, because she was attractive, she was foreign, and she had experience working in noble families. But the most horrible offense of all, She maintained her sense of cool and collection at all times. Now, moving into pre-trial, of course, the initial inquest finds the Mannings guilty of murder and they're put on trial. Their former lodger, William Massey, revealed one intriguing piece of information that the Mannings told him that Patrick had left Maria the majority of his assets in his will Additionally, there was evidence indicating that they had bought a shovel and lime. so by the time the inquiry was over, the case had essentially already been established. This conspiracy evidence was crucial because, for once, the law, which at the time gave to married women so little freedom, actually worked in their favor. It was assumed that a wife's first devotion belonged to her husband, Therefore, she could not be held accountable as an accessory after the fact for a murder committed by him. So the prosecution would have to prove that she had prior knowledge of the intended crime, that she actively participated in it, or that she took the initiative to try to make money off it. So the investigation turns to proving those points. The trial would last two days. And that might seem like a very short amount of time, but for that time period, two days was actually much longer than the average trial would take. And this might be partially attributable to the defense and the judge uh, worrying about whether to pick individuals with Swiss or French ancestry to serve on the jury in order to give Maria an impartial trial. Even still, there's never really any question about the outcome. And Maria yells obscenities at the English as she's being brought away from the dock. The major evidence in her prosecution turns out to be bloodstains on a clothing piece that belongs to her, and the fact that she paid for the lime supplied prior to the murder. So she's found guilty, and so is Fred, but his guilt was never really in doubt. The executions are scheduled for the early hours of Tuesday, November thirteenth, 1849, and were to take place at Horsemonger Lane Jail. The biggest crowd to ever watch a public hanging was expected to attend their execution, and it's estimated that around 30,000 people attended, both the wealthy and the working class. There were onlookers everywhere, and between 500 and 1,000 police officers were present to control the gathering. According to an article for Crime Wire, The Times reports the execution as follows In an instant, Calcraft, the executioner, withdrew the bolt, the drop fell, and the sentence of the law was fulfilled. Fred died almost without a struggle, while Maria writhed for some seconds. Their bodies were left to hang for the customary hour before they were taken down and in the evening buried in the precincts of jail. And Charles Dickens, who was among the spectators, wrote... I believe that a sight so inconceivably awful as the wickedness and levity of the immense crowd collected at that execution this morning could be imagined by no man, and could be presented in no heathen land under the sun, the horrors of the gibbet and the crime which brought the wretched murderers to it, faded in my mind before the atrocious bearing looks and language of the assembled spectators." So because of that quote, some believe that Charles Dickens' outrage was actually caused more by the crowd's reaction to the hanging than by any empathy for the Mannings or their suffering. And some of the more affluent viewers would have spent a lot of money to secure prime viewing locations overlooking the scaffold. Uh, Stylish women would even don opera glasses to enhance their views. It's likely that a large portion of the crowd was disappointed that both of them were hung without really any incident. Now, while Frederick's dress or attire was unknown, um, it was likely to have been his best suit. But Maria decided that she wanted to look beautiful even at the end. And so she decides to wear a stylish black satin dress and veil, which she was permitted to do. Uh, This is more of a myth, but according to some reports, black satin as a dress fabric would fall out of favor and remain that way for close to 30 years after her execution. Now, in order to avoid offensive odors, it was customary at the time to bury the remains of people who had been hung uh, in graves on prison property that were filled or lined with quicklime. Thus, the Mannings were buried in the same circumstances that they had wanted to leave Patrick. It's one last ironic gesture for a really murderous marriage. Uh, Now, Maria does appear in the Chamber of Horrors at Madame Tussauds, and it's likely that Kellcraft, the executioner, sold them the garment she wore when she was being hung. To ensure a true resemblance, Tussauds most likely dispatched an artist to court to actually sketch her face. And later, Charles Dickens would give Maria Manning Uh, role as Mademoiselle Hortense, Lady Deadlock's maid in his book, Bleak House. She is someone who despises her boss and considers herself superior to the menial position she holds. Uh, And then she murders someone at the end of the book. And that brings us to the end of the episode on the Bermondsey Horror and the life and crimes of Fred and Maria Manning. Like always, if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have any feedback or a case suggestion for us, you can find us on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod, or you can reach us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.